All right, Acts 11. Remember our big uh, grid for how we're looking at Acts. Acts is about the geographic expansion of the gospel. We've done Jerusalem. We've done Judea. We've done Samaria. Last week we looked at to the ends of the earth. So all of this is from Acts 1-8 where Luke says, Jesus actually, Luke is recording Jesus' words, where Jesus says, here's, here's how the gospel is going to travel uh, to, the known, to the ends of the known world at that point. Last week we again talked about that seismic shift in, uh, with Peter and Cornelius, a recognition that you don't have to become a Jew in order to follow Jesus. You don't have to become a Jew in order to be included in the family of God. From Genesis 12 all the way up to Acts 10, that's the common, that's the understanding. If you're going to be in the family of God, then you've got to first become a Jew. In Acts 10, we see that uh, understanding changed where anyone who has faith in Jesus is incorporated into the family of God. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, two sections. The first section is Peter recapping Acts chapter 10. So we're going to go through that really quickly. And then the second section is we'll see the establishment of the first Gentile church in a city called Antioch. So chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You entered the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So remember the whole idea, Jews did not um, interact with Gentiles. They didn't eat with them. They didn't go into their house because defilement or uncleanness was contagious. And so you couldn't eat the food that a Gentile would prepare. You couldn't, but even if they made kosher food, they most likely didn't make it the right way. There, was, there were surfaces in the house that would be unclean, and if you touched them, then you would be unclean. And so for all of those reasons, Jews just didn't enter Gentile houses. And there's some people in Jerusalem, uh, some conservative Jewish Christians, and they say to Peter, you blew it. Like, you went into this guy's house. We heard about that. It's interesting. That's the only thing they seem to have heard about what happened at Cornelius's house is that Peter went into the house. That's kind of how maybe how gossip works or rumors. And so Peter says, let me tell you the story. And he goes back and he tells them everything that happened. You can listen to the message last week if you want to know the significance of all of those things. We don't have time this week to get into it. But the bottom line is once Peter says the Holy Spirit came on them just like he came on us, we spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2. They spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 10. That was God's divine stamp of approval. Him saying the exact same experience y'all had is the 
the experience that they had. That's his way of saying they've they're in. They don't have to become Jews. They've experienced the Holy Spirit in the same way that y'all have. Once these Jewish Christians hear that, they're in, and they begin to praise the Lord for his work. Verse 19. Now, those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. So if you remember way back to Acts chapter 7 and 8, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death. Paul, Saul, was the one who kind of stood and kind of presided over that. And then a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The church went underground, and then a lot of the disciples left Jerusalem. They scattered. That was a word used in chapter 8, and it's used here again in chapter 11. So that's who we're talking about. These disciples who had spent the first several years of their faith in Jerusalem have now all left Jerusalem because of this persecution. So these guys traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So they would go to synagogues in these different cities and towns. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So here's a map to kind of give you some perspective on what's happening or give you maybe a, a bit of a visual. So we're down in Jerusalem. 300 miles north is Antioch. You can see Phoenicia is a region. Cyprus is an island. And you can see where Paul is around the bend there in Tarsus. So the great, this great persecution breaks out. Disciples scatter everywhere they go. They're synagogues. The Jews have been scattered for centuries, and they've established synagogues everywhere they've gone. And so these disciples are going to these synagogues, and they're sharing the good news about Jesus. And then some of them just decide, hey, let's talk to the Greeks as well. Let's talk to the Gentiles as well. So they go to Antioch, which was the, the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, 500 to 800,000 people, large city. And they go there, and they begin to speak to Greeks. They begin to speak to Gentiles. And the Lord moves. We have people, numbers of people are coming to faith. Word travels back 300 miles, all the way back down to Jerusalem. And the apostles there say, let's send Barnabas. Let's send Barnabas so he can tell us what's going on. And he was a very strategic choice. So we're partners in education with Park Street. It's largely a Spanish-speaking school. And if we hear, hey, there's a move of God among the families of Park Street... You're not going to send me. I can count to ten and say, God bless you in Spanish. That's it. That's all I got. We're going to send Elio and Lillian Arniella, who know Spanish and know Latin culture, because they're going to be able to understand the people. The people are going to feel comfortable with them. They're going to be able to figure out what's going on. Barnabas is a Greek-speaking Jew. He's Christian at this point, following Jesus. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He's from one of, he was from um, Cyprus, actually. 
is where he was from. And so he had some affinity with these other Gentiles, with these Greek-speaking folks who are following Jesus now. So it makes sense. He also has the trust of the apostles. So it makes sense for them to send him. And he goes, he's like, this is great. Everything is great. You guys just stand firm until the end. You just persevere in your faith. And he begins to do his work there, and more people are coming to the Lord. And then at some point, he's like, this is too much work for me. And he remembers Paul, Saul. We last saw him in Acts chapter 9. He's in Tarsus. The reason he's in Tarsus is he used to be in Jerusalem, and some people in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. And so they, the believers send him to Tarsus to kind of hide him out. And we don't know how long he's there. Some people say up to 10 years from Acts chapter 9 to 11. I don't know that. So, but he's been there for several years. Barnabas knows this guy has a call to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This guy speaks Greek as well. Let me, he goes and gets him. So he goes and he finds him. He brings him back. And Paul and Barnabas kind of co-pastor for a year, discipling the church there in Antioch. And then some guys move the 300 miles up from Jerusalem. Some prophets, one of them's name's Agabus, and he says, led by the Spirit, there's going to be a famine down in Judea. And so all of the Christians up there in Antioch who've never, they don't, they're not connected to the guys in Jerusalem at all. It's 300 miles. They hadn't made that trip. But they know we're brothers and sisters. And so if they're not going to be able to grow food, we're going to send them some money. And so each family decides what they're going to give. The Gordons decide what they're going to give, and the Walkers decide what they're going to give. And then Paul and Barnabas take all that money and take it back to Jerusalem in preparation for this famine. And so that's Acts 11 pretty quick. As I read both of those, read that chapter, and I was looking at both of those sections, the thing that jumped out at me the most was how different God's leading or how different God's guidance was in the first section and in the second section. That first section is full of supernatural activity. You've got Peter saying, in a trance, I saw a vision. And then I heard a voice from heaven. So he heard God with his ears. And that happens three times. Three times vision, three times voice. And then after that, when the vision is over, some guys show up at the door and the Spirit says, go with them. And then Cornelius to him. And as Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on these guys and they all start speaking in tongues. That's a lot of fireworks in a three or four day period. Lots of supernatural activity. And then you look at the second half of Acts chapter 11, and you don't see any of that. When these guys, whoever they are, the nameless and the faceless disciples, choose to begin to speak to Gentiles, this is what Luke says happened. Some, however, went and they began to speak. So Peter, in order to speak to a Gentile, three visions and three voices from heaven. These other guys, it's like, ah, let's try this. Really different. Really different. There doesn't seem to be all of the comfort. Church sent Barnabas. It made sense. He was a bridge builder. He could connect with these guys in Antioch. He was also connected to the people in Jerusalem. So he's the one that makes the most sense. We don't see them praying and fasting. We don't see an angel showing up saying, send Barnabas. When Barnabas, when the work gets to be too much for him, he just says, hey, let me go get Saul. He's pretty close. It's quicker to get to Tarsus than it is to get back to Jerusalem. He knows Greek. He's supposed to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I bet he'll want to come. And so he goes and finds him and brings him back. Again, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of divine guidance. The one thing we do see that we would say is supernatural is Agabus predicting a famine. That's a big deal. But the response of the church, again, is just it's normal. It's natural. 
These are our brothers and sisters. They're not going to be able to eat. We've got money. Let's send it to them. And so when you read both of those sections side by side, you see the differences in the way God leads and God, God directs us. And that kind of springboarded me into that whole idea of how God guides us. One of our values or anchors, whatever you want to say, is rooted in Galatians 5.25. We want to walk in the Spirit or be led by the Spirit is the, the, the phrase that we use. We want to be led. And so for some of us, when you hear me say that, what I mean and what you hear are not the same thing. Or when I say you, you can hear God, he speaks to you. What I'm saying and what you're hearing are not the same thing. In John 10, when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, what he means and what you hear Sometimes it doesn't line up. When we hear the word hear, we normally think with our ears. Very, very rarely does God speak to us that way. When you hear the word led, I don't know exactly what you're thinking. But God rarely leads us in ways that are um, undeniable, incontrovertible. It's usually a direction, a word from uh, something somebody says to us, a a verse in the Bible that you could easily explain away or not. And that's what his leading often feels like. So I'm going to try to be uber, uber practical with you this morning and give you, I hope, a couple of handholds around this whole idea of what it means to be led by the Spirit. So two questions if you're facing a decision. First question you ask, do you need new information or is this something where God has already spoken? So if you're at a decision point, whatever, that, whatever decision point you're at, you're at a fork in the road. I don't want you just thinking about spiritual things because God cares about every aspect of your life. The Bible says the Father knows the number of hairs on our head, and he keeps up when we lose them. He says he knows, the number of, he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and dies. Can you imagine that? Think of all the birds out there. He knows when a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from his knowledge. So he cares about everything. And so I don't want you thinking strictly in terms of your spiritual life or your moral life. When you face a fork in the road, if you're facing one now, do you need new information? Or is this something that God has already spoken about? If it's something God's already spoken about, it's going to be in the Bible. This is a great book. I want you to know it. It reveals who God is. It reveals how God acts. It reveals how he wants us to respond. All of the big philosophical questions that people ask, the Bible answers. Is there a God? Who is he? What happens when I die? How, how do I live a life full of purpose? All of those questions are answered in the Bible. And the Bible also answers or gives a lot of practical advice. There's a lot of wisdom in the Bible. Proverbs is full of it. It's 31 chapters of very practical living. Life, your life will go better. The Bible's full of lists of behavior. Hey, don't do these things. They're destructive. And history has proven those are destructive behaviors. If you engage in them, you don't just destroy others. You wind up destroying yourself. We call those things sin. The Bible also has tons of practical wisdom. Here's how you relate to your spouse and your parents and your children and your boss and your government and your enemies and your neighbors. Here's what that looks like. The Bible will tell you how it's going to feel if you're in credit card debt. It's going to say you're going to feel like a slave. That's what it's going to say. And if you've been there, you know how that's true. The Bible tells you how to deal with enemies. The Bible tells you what it looks like to forgive people. The Bible tells you all kinds of practical ways about how to run your house. It even speaks to you about your business. All kinds of things are included in the Bible. And so you don't need revelation on that. 
You don't need new information. It's stuff God has already said. So you just need to know the Bible. And if you say, I don't know the Bible that well, lucky for you, they have this box now, and you can bring up the Internet, and you can type in the box. What does the Bible say about? And it'll tell you. It'll bring up all the verses. And so if you're stuck and you're going, I don't know, Google it. Do that. And then read the Bible verses. It's better for you to have a bigger handle on everything the Bible says. That's better because it gives context. Rather than just having a list of five verses. Those can be easily misunderstood. But a list of five verses is better than nothing. There's so many issues where God has already spoken. And when we come to a decision point, it's just a matter of, 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 of a little bit of research. God, what do you say about this? And then you'll look it up. And it doesn't mean you're not spiritual if you have to look it up. Nobody's got the whole thing memorized. Just look it up and see what the Bible says. But there are lots of issues in your life that the Bible does not talk about. Those of you who are married, how many of you found the name of your spouse in the Bible? You didn't. How many of you found the name of, the, of your college in the Bible? How many of you found the name of your company in the Bible? Things that for us are personal or individual, they're not in here. And they couldn't be. About 120 billion people have lived over the course of history. Can you imagine 120, people, 120 billion people long book? How big is the book? And so rather than that, rather than giving everybody their own book, what God says is, hey, if you'll follow me, I'll put my spirit within you and he can lead you into all truth. He can lead you into the truth that's in the Bible, and he can lead you into this truth that's personal and individualized for you about your life. He can help you know, should you ask her out. He can help you know whether what job you should pick. He'll, he can help you know what you should do with your kids for school. He can help you know how much money you should give or where you should serve it. All of those things that aren't necessarily in the Bible. It's not that he doesn't care. He cares a lot. And so what he's done is said, I'm going to live within you. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And he can guide you and direct you into, in all of those issues that are not clear in the Bible. So some people, go to the, they go to the Bible for the wrong things. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry. And so if you're reading the pages, you're going to wind up marrying somebody named Dorcas. Because that, that's the name that's in here. And there's not a lot of those out there. But he does care. So ask him. Is she the one? Is he the one? Same thing, all these decisions that you face in your life, he wants to guide you and direct you. So your first question, do I need new information? Or has God already spoken? Another way of looking at that, we've talked about this before, is wisdom and revelation. Wisdom, that stuff God's already said. It's holy common sense. Wisdom, the connotation biblically is of skill. It's this idea of putting knowledge into practice so that you live better. Again, it's holy common sense for us. Very, very rarely, I would almost say never, I just don't want to use that strong a word, so I'm going to say very, very rarely is wisdom new information. Almost never is that the case. Wisdom is tried and true. Tried and true. It's passed down. Oftentimes it's contained here in the Bible. And there's also revelation, which by definition is new. This is new data. This is a disclosure, a revealing of something that's been hidden up to this point. In Acts chapter 11, Peter has revelation. Up to this point in history, in order to be in the family of God, you had to be circumcised and keep the dietary food laws. Now, all of a sudden, that's not the case. That's new information. That's revelation. Wisdom doesn't get you there. 
That's why you have three visions and three voices and angels. And that's why you have all of those things. This is new. And so Peter and Cornelius and the church at large needs to hear that. And so God makes sure everybody knows this is me. So it wasn't Peter's idea. This is me. And here's the testimony around that. So if you need new information, that's revelation. If it's something already spoken, it may be wisdom for you. And you're bent one way or the other. Some of you are bent towards wisdom. And that's how you make all decisions. You need to hear that. That's not just how you make spiritual decisions. It's how you make all decisions. Some of you are geared towards wisdom. Some of you are geared towards revelation. Neither one is better than the other. It's really important to know which way you lean. If you're married, super important for you to know the way your spouse leans. Because that can cause some conflict. If you're a revelation person, sometimes you can feel squashed by wisdom people. They ask too many questions. They poke too many holes. And you start feeling like, oh, every idea I have is a terrible idea. That's just them being them. That's part of what they bring to the table. If you're a wisdom person, don't squelch revelation. You need it. Wisdom people are the middle of the bell curve. They always make solid decisions. They very rarely make great ones because this is where they're living. They're living in this kind of, it's the tried and true. It's what's conventional. Revelation people, they're the ones kind of in secular terminology, think outside the box. It's not thinking outside the box. It's hearing God. But what they're, they can make great decisions and terrible ones. They're on the ends of the bell curve. And we need everybody. We need everybody. Some of you are in positions of leadership in companies. Who's sitting around the table with you? If it, is it all wisdom people? Do you have any revelation people sitting around the table? Whether it's a Christian company or not, don't you, you don't have to use the word revelation. You can call it thinking outside the box or being creative or whatever, but that's what you want. You want people who are listening to the Lord, even for your business. If you're missing that, you'll stay solid. You may never do anything extraordinary, and that may be okay. If you're all revelation people... If that's all you have around the table, you may want to think about making sure you have a really good savings account because the thing might not last very long. You might hit a home run and maybe strike out. You want both. So we want to know that about ourselves, which way do I lean, about the people who are making decisions with me, whether that's spouse, whether that's staff, whether that's leadership team, whether that's you and your company or wherever you happen to be very important for you to know. And again, that's the way you make all decisions, not just the way you make spiritual decisions. It's your Psalm 139. It's the way you're wired. And for both, for we, we need to recognize, I lean towards revelation, and I need to lean back towards wisdom. So I try to surround myself, particularly in the church. We have a bunch of engineers who help lead the church because they're, in general, stereotypically wisdom-oriented people. We have an accountant who helps us. Make decisions. You don't want revelation guys running your finances. You don't. And so I need to recognize what I need. And I also need to recognize God speaks through wisdom. And it's not less than. It's not less spiritual. Wisdom people, revelation people are not immature necessarily. It's not necessarily impulsive. The idea may not be fully developed. That doesn't mean it's not the Lord. You get that. So figure out which one you are. Appreciate what other people are. Make sure you're willing to lean back in the other direction. So first question, do you need new information or is this already settled? Second question, what are the repercussions? What are the consequences? The bigger the decision, the more confirmation you can expect. If something has already been settled, don't ask God to confirm it. 
Don't ask God if you need to forgive the person who sinned against you. Yes. It's written multiple times in here. You don't need an angel. He's not going to send you one. It's in here. John says, if the things Jesus did were all recorded, there's not enough books in the world to hold them. So the words that we have in this book were picked, if you believe in the inspiration of the Bible. They were picked by God. These are the ones he wants us to know. And so if it's in here, it's really important. And you don't need to ask him, are you sure? Is that really for me? Absolutely. So don't ask him if you need to. Is it okay for me to exasperate my children today? They're really driving me crazy. No, it's not okay. Do I have to serve her today? Absolutely. All the time. Those things are in black and white. So don't ask for confirmation on things that are already settled. But there's lots of issues that are not settled where the Bible's not clear. So what are the, what are the consequences? What are the repercussions? For Peter, again, this is a seismic shift in what it means to be the people of God. Massive implications for the world. So let's make sure we get it right. Three visions. Three voices. Angels. Tongues. The whole deal. All of it. In a really short period of time, God wants to make sure. It's the difference between, God, should I ask her out and should I propose? Those are different. The consequences. Should I take this job? Should I change careers? Particularly if you already have responsibilities, if you've moved up and your consequences there are much greater than going from, it's a bigger deal. Burger King to McDonald's is not a big a shift as Burger King to teaching. It's a much greater, it's a whole new career. For you. God, what are you saying? Should I move to Lee's Crossing? Should I move to Syria? They're not the same thing. And so the bigger, the, the greater the consequences, if you want to say bigger decision, you can. I don't want to belittle any decision, so I'm just saying the greater the consequences, the more confirmation you can expect. It's okay to ask. It's okay to ask for more confirmation. As the, and, and it's your personal threshold in a lot of ways. As the, decision, as the consequences get greater, it's okay to say, God, I, I want to be sure. Some of you are married, and you felt when you went from being single to being married, you felt the weight of your decisions because they don't just impact you. You could sleep outside under a bridge. You're not sure she wants to do that. And so your decisions take on greater weight. And then some of you have children, and with each child you've had, you've felt that, again, I will sleep under a bridge, and maybe she'll sleep under a bridge with me. I don't know if the rest of these four will. The decisions get larger, or the, the, the consequences are greater the more people who we're connected to. Some of you are in positions of leadership in your work, and you feel the weight of that. When you were not maybe in that senior level, there were all kinds of things that you thought. If I was ever in charge, this is what I'd do. And now you're in charge, and you're looking out the window saying, does somebody tell me what to do? The consequences, you feel the weight of that, right? The greater the consequences, the more confirmation you can ask for from the Lord. And the more people who are connected to you, the more people the decision affects. I think it's okay to say, God, I want to make sure. This isn't just me. This is me and her, or this is me and them, or this is me and us. And so I want to make sure that I'm hearing you on this. If it's already settled, don't ask for confirmation. If it's not, the greater the decision the more confirmation you can ask for. Another way you can think about this, I hope this makes it super practical, red lights and green lights. This is 1 Samuel 10. Samuel's a prophet. He's talking to Saul, who's just been anointed king. And Samuel says, once these signs, he lists three signs, once they're fulfilled, you do whatever you want. 
Whatever your hand finds you to do, you do that for God is with you. You're the king. He's anointed you for this. That's a green light. Just live your life. Then the, immediately, the very next verse, Samuel to Saul, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I'll surely come down to you to sacrifice, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. That's a red light. It's not contradictory information. It's two different paradigms for how we live. Green lights for me, light's green unless it's red. It's a yes unless it's a no. That's regular life. You don't need to ask the Lord if you should go to school tomorrow. You don't need to ask the Lord if you should go to work tomorrow. You don't need to ask the Lord if you should love your spouse. You don't need to ask the Lord if you should pay your taxes. You don't need to ask him those things. It's already, just do it. He's clear, just go. Just live. You don't need to ask the Lord if you should be a witness. You don't need to ask the Lord if you should serve the poor. All that stuff is, just go and do those things. You're not going to mess that up. Just live, run fast. Big decisions. Should we move? Should I change careers? Should I propose? Those types of things. You assume that you are where God wants you to be. Sovereignly. Unless he said, and then let him move you into the next thing. So big decisions, the light's red. God has sovereignly put me where he's put me for a purpose. And so I don't need to spend a bunch of time saying, God, is this the right job for me? Is this the right city for me? That can paralyze me and that can cause me to miss all kinds of things he wants to do in my life and through me right now. Because I'm looking out and wondering and I don't need to do that. God can show up. He can, just like he put me here, he can put me somewhere else and that's on him. He's the only one that can see the whole chessboard. He's the one that, had, he reveals himself to Peter. Peter's just praying. He's not praying about Gentiles. He's praying. He's hungry. It's in Acts 10. That's why he's praying. It's for food. And then God says, here, speaking of food, here's a vision. All people are clean. Gentiles don't have to become Jews anymore. Huge deal on God's timetable. Cornelius is praying and an angel shows up. God is absolutely willing and able to do that for you. He can redirect you in all of the major areas of your life, and you don't need to spend a ton of time worried about that. It'll begin with you feeling discontent where you are, if that's what you're wondering. I don't want to miss it. You're not going to miss an angel in your room. You're probably not going to miss a voice from heaven. He may not speak to you that way, but it'll start with discontentment in your heart with where you are. And then God will begin to pull your heart into another direction. You've experienced that before. And so you can just count on him to do that. So you stay focused on the things that he's put in front of you and just do them. Run fast. Run free. Don't worry about messing up. He is more invested in your obedience and your holiness than you are. And so the Holy Spirit lives within you and he can, he'll redirect you as he sees fit. But we don't need to spend a bunch of time being paralyzed. God, am I in the right spot? Am I in the right spot? Is this the right thing for me to do? Is this the right thing for me to do? Do what... Do what's in front of you, whatever your hand finds you to do. Do those things. Trust him to move you in the big decisions. The point for me is I want you to be led, and I want you to recognize what that means. That doesn't mean that in every minute decision that you make on a daily basis that you're going to hear the audible voice of God. If that's what you're looking for, it's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit lives within you. God, how about this? Trust you. He trusts you. 
as a son and as a daughter. And so he says, do what your hand finds you to do. If you're doing the wrong thing, I'm going to let you know. The precondition for all of this is surrender. If you're surrendered to him, then the the lights are green and you can run. And you can trust him to move you in the big areas where the lights are red. Occasionally, he will speak to you in very obviously supernatural ways. And that's when the consequences of those decisions are massive. But day in and day out, you're not going to have angels. You're not going to have visions three times telling you the same thing. You're not going to hear voices from heaven. You're going to have internal stirrings. You're going to have thoughts flash across your mind. You're going to have a verse that stands out amidst the whole chapter that you're reading. And the question at that point is, are you going to grab onto it or are you going to ignore it? You can explain all of those things away. But if you're surrendered, then you'll, you'll be led. If you're not, you won't. Let's pray. Two things. We'll pray with you about anything at all you have going on, but I want to focus on two groups. We're going to have ministry teams in the corner. And so if you are facing a decision, I want you to let them pray for you about that decision. If you're at a fork in the road in any area of your life, as an act of faith, I just want you to say, God, I'm going to give you, I I want to know. I need some information here. It may be something that's in the Bible, and that's okay. It may be something where you need God to speak personally to you, and that's great as well. So if you're facing a decision in any area of your life, let us pray for you. And then the second thing we're going to do, I want, if I can have this row, so Gordon's and Sonnendeckers, if y'all can move when we stand up, so you can move over there somewhere else. We'll have this row, and if you just need to surrender, which is a huge deal, if there's an area of your life you're like, I don't want God talking to me about that because, honestly, I think I do a pretty good job. I'm, not, I'm concerned about what he's going to do if I give him access to that area of my life. Then we want you to come forward, and I want you to kneel here if you're able to. You can kneel um, on these chairs um, and just pray. And nobody will say something to you. Somebody might come by and put a hand on your back, but they won't ask about the area. And you can just deal with the Lord about that area of surrender. It may not be an issue a decision point that you have, but you know, God, I haven't surrendered my family. I haven't surrendered my future. I haven't surrendered my finances. There are things that you can't tell me at this point because I'm not surrendered. I want to hold on to control. And if that's you, we want you to come and kneel here. Is that clear? So I'm going to pray, and then you guys can respond as you will. Ministry teams, I'd love for you guys to go ahead and come forward. God, I thank you that you lead us. You didn't have to, and you do. God, I thank you that you've given us this wonderful book that has everything that we need for life and godliness contained in its pages. And I thank you so, so much that you've given us your hope in all of these decisions that are not contained in that book. God, I thank you that the Holy Spirit leads us into flourishing and thriving still waters and green pastures and paths of righteousness for your name's sake. He leads us into those things. God, I pray for people here who say, God does not speak to me. It doesn't work. God, I pray that in the next three minutes that you would, you would reveal yourself to them, God, that they would hear your voice. And my conviction is they're going to say, oh, that's what he sounds like. I've been, he's been speaking for a long time but that they would hear you in these moments. 
God, I pray that you would set us free to do the things that are in front of us. I want to recognize that you're a good, good father. You're more invested in our obedience and holiness than we are, and you'll guide us and direct us. But we want to be led by you. So come now, and God, I want to pray for anyone who's hanging on. So easy for us to take back the steering wheel in different areas of our life. And the more important the area is or the more precious it is to our heart, the the greater the temptation to grab it back. And honestly, God, it's because we don't trust you in that area. We're not sure you're really good in that area. So God, would you show us that you can be trusted and that you are? Would you give us courage to surrender here this morning? So come, Holy Spirit, and work in our hearts. Speak to those Direct those who need guidance. Encourage those of us who need to surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand and respond as you will and bowl.